0: We're going to be looking at the story, and as I was thinking about this even this morning as I was praying, I, you know, this line that you sometimes hear or someone might even say to you is, you know, what's your story? In other words, who are you? What's your story? And for many of us, if somebody asks us that, we don't even really know what to say. You know, I, 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 in a lot of my Steps to Freedom um, appointments, I ask people, who are you? And that's really a difficult question to answer. Think about it. If somebody came up to you today to and said, who are you? You might start with your name. That's pretty good. And then you go to your job or your family and, and all these things that you do. But none of those things are really who you are. And When it comes to our story, it's kind of the same. What's your story? Well, I was born and I was married and I'm going to die. And I hope there's something good in between. And that's about as much as we think of it. Well, when we read the Bible, so often I hear this from people, and I've said this myself, I just don't understand what I'm reading. I don't get it. It's too complicated. And the reality is, <clears throat> if we don't understand the story, it is a little hard to understand. Have you ever went to a, to a movie or been watching a movie on TV, or maybe you're not a movie person, you're more of a book person, and you're going to read this suspense novel or you're going to this this dramatic movie, a suspenseful movie, and decide that, well, here's the book, but I tore out the first chapter. Here's the movie, but we erased the first ten minutes. Can you imagine how confused you might be trying to figure out what in the world is going on in this book? What's going on in this movie? I don't even know who the characters are, really. What are they supposed to be doing? What's trying to be accomplished? Well, we're going to look at God's story. Because if we don't understand the first 11 chapters of the Bible, we are going to miss so much of God's story. And as I talked about in this, there's going to be, sometimes you're going to hear me refer to the upper story, and all I mean by that is God's story. What's God's story in this? But we're also going to talk about the lower story. And what we're talking about there is man. God's story man's story and how man fits into God's story and it's critical that we understand how that works because if we don't so much of the Bible we may not understand and some of it even if we think we understand it we really don't understand how to apply it that's interesting I get it but what's the point and that's what we wanna really see play out in the number of weeks ahead as we go through the story now if you purchased a book they're on the, on the table out there, pick them up, uh, pay Cindy, and we're going to be ordering some more. So if your name's not on this next list and you want to get a book, please uh, put your name down and we'll get those for you. The story. We're going to start out using a term that I used to talk about way back when, when I was a science teacher, the Big Bang Theory. Only the Big Bang Theory I'm going to talk about here today is a lot different than the Big Bang Theory that I talked about when I was a science teacher. <clears throat> the science teacher I talked about, there was this, just this one day somewhere out there, someplace, something decided to blow up, big bang. And because something blew up and everything went bang, all of a sudden, everything just happened to fall into these perfect places under gravitational pulls, etc., etc., etc. And billions of galaxies formed, and our galaxy formed, and then our earth formed, and the sun and the moon and the stars. It's a theory. Albeit, it's a bad one, but that's the one that I used to teach. Lord, forgive me. I'm going to be talking about the Big Bang of creation. This Big Bang is a revelation of who God is. And as we go through this, we're going to discover that he is the main character in the story. The Bible story opens up in Genesis 1:1 with these words, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. What was there besides God? I have no idea. But I know whatever it was, He was there. God. He is the main character of the story we call the Bible. He is the main character. It's about God and His plan. So the Big Bang isn't some impersonal accident that took place somewhere. The Big Bang theory that we're talking about is the creative purpose of a very personal God. It's not an impersonal accident. It's a creative act by a personal God. And one thing you're going to hear so often in the weeks ahead is how much you mean to that personal God. And my hope is you will have a revelation in your heart of who you are no matter what the world has told you you are, no matter what circumstances have made you think you are, and no matter what your past tries to tell you you are. And as we go through this, we are going to discover God is the main character. But He doesn't necessarily have, He is not necessarily the point of the story. God spoke the big bang of creation. The big Cape bang of creation was brought about by the words and the power of a personal God. On day one, he created light and darkness and he called it day and night. He spoke it into being. On day two, he created the sky and the water. And remember, remember, get this in your head right away. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. Before he even created light and dark, he had a plan. And he knew what the plan was going to look like when he got done with day six. Picture, if you would, an artist who has this huge piece of canvas. In their mind's eye, they know what it's going to look like. And they already know what the focal point of that piece of art is going to be and the message that that piece of art is going to to portray. They already have that in mind. Well, God has in mind much more clearly than any other artist. And he starts with his big bang of his word speaking, and he says, let there be light, let there be dark. And then he creates the sky and the water, and then he creates the land. Notice these are places. He's just kind of like filling in the background of this unbelievable portrait, this unbelievable picture that he's painting. And that's all background. And then he says, I'm gonna take those places and now I'm gonna fill those places with what they've been designed to hold. He says, the, 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 the light and the dark, the day and the night, he fills it with the sun and the moon and the stars. And he did a pretty good job. He fills that place that he created with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then he goes on the day five and he he fills the the sky and the waters with the birds and all of the sea creatures. No accidents here. He would created the place and now he's putting all of these things in there. And then on day three he had created land and on day six he says, I'm going to cover the land now with the animals. All that he had been preparing, each place now was ready for him to fill those places. And each day, if you know the story, he said, boy, this is good. Day two, this is good. They're going to love it here. Day three, this is good. This is just what I had in mind when I put all the animals on the earth. This is good. And when he finished after day five and six, he had created all these things. And then he creates man. And we're going to come back to man. But he finally, says, when he sees man and he sees all the animals, he says, this isn't good. What wasn't good? It wasn't wasn't that he wasn't pleased with man. He did that perfectly. But he saw man was alone and he said, this isn't good, so he created Eve. And he said, this is very good. Perfect. So we have creation. All the animals, all that we know, created by the power of a personal God doing this for a very specific reason. A very specific reason. If you have your books, I'm gonna just take a little deviation and I'm gonna put a map up here, but you have this map on the inside cover of your book. And this map is of of ancient Israel. And as best we can tell, I always think these kinds of things are interesting. If it bores you, just turn off for a second or two. Garden of Eden over there in the red, as near as we can tell from the biblical description, it tells us there's four rivers. Two of them we no longer can see, the Pishon and the Gihon River, But it mentions the Tigris and the Euphrates River. So Eden was probably right in that area. And a little bit later in the story, we're going to get to uh, Noah and the ark. And Mount Ararat is up there to the north. Somewhere up there is where we know from the Bible where it says it came to rest at one time. Where it is right now, everybody's got an opinion. But it's interesting to me to see those things and know, you know what, they're real places. I call this a story, but it's a true story. It's not one that we've made up. And when God finished with these six days of creation, everything was perfect. And he he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And with the Garden of Eden, we see a picture of absolute perfection. The perfection of Eden. Eden. Everything that he created was perfect, including Adam and Eve. I've been trying to think about what it would be like for the last few weeks to live in perfection. I mean, how do you even decide what you want to do that day? Everything's perfect. Where where do you want to go today? Everything's, every place is perfect. I wake up and there's Eve and she's perfect every morning. And I'm even perfect. What would it be like? I can't can't really wrap my mind around those thoughts. But here it was, absolute perfection. And it had to be perfect. Why? Because God has a vision for what he has done. And the vision he has for what he has done is to have fellowship and a personal relationship with man. And there had to be perfection. There could be no sin. He's a holy and righteous God. And he was walking, the Bible tells us, he was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Gow, what a cool picture that is. Perfection in the garden of Eden. Everything perfect. I want to regress just a moment to the creation of man. When God creates man, that big bang of creation, that was the last act, creating man creating Adam and Eve and creating them in His image. In the image of God, we are created. He breathed the Spirit. He breathed life into Adam and Eve. God's core passion is us. It's you and it's me. He painted that whole portrait of creation for us. Everything he did was for us to enjoy. It's like everything else is just the picture frame and we're the picture. Just think about that. Think about a sunset, how beautiful it can be. A sunrise, how beautiful it can be. Think about the Grand Canyon. Shoot, think about the seven wonders of the world. God goes, they're nothing. There's only one wonder of the world that you ought to be impressed with, and that's man. I created them to have fellowship with them. All the rest of the stuff is just the picture frame. He wants to have relationship with us. God is the main character of the story, but we, mankind, are the point of the story. He's the main character. Without Him, nothing exists. But we're the point of his story. Why? We are the point of the story. God had this vision of dwelling together with us. That's his heart. And then we have the Big Bang continue with the fall of man. We call it the fall of man. I shared with the guys I meet with, I said, I don't even like that term. It makes it sound like it was an accident or something. They tripped on a banana and fell we should call it the bad choice of man they made a bad choice sin sin came into the world you know of all of the wonderful things God gave Adam and Eve gave humankind when he created us one of the greatest is the one that gets us in so much trouble freedom of choice freedom of choice he gave us freedom of choice because God doesn't force anybody to love him. Forced love isn't love. So he gave Adam and Eve a choice. And again, a lot of this story I hope is familiar to you, but if it's not, you're going to enjoy reading it for the first time if you haven't. But he creates them in his image, absolute perfection. He they puts him in this environment of perfection and he says, there's one choice. There's one choice one rule here, just one rule. And that could be called the tale of two trees. He says, in the center of a garden, of all of this perfection, there are two trees. One of them is called the tree of life. You eat of the tree of life and you live forever. The other one's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells them, Every plant, every tree, all the fruit of it is perfect for you. I created it for you. Except that one tree in the garden, you must not eat of it. And he just didn't give him an order and a command, you know, because he he probably knows that we are just like our kids. The first thing that comes out of our mouth when we hear a rule is, why? Why? He preempts that. He says, There's just this one tree, don't eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of this tree, because the moment that you eat of it, you will surely die. But all the rest of perfection is yours to enjoy. So he even warns them of the consequences. And we know the story, a lot of us know the story. Satan shows up in the form of a serpent and he tempts them. And Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of a knowledge of good and evil. And lots of things happened when they did that. But one of the things that happened was it put a stop to God's vision of intimate fellowship and relationship with mankind. Sin entered. Imperfection entered the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the Garden of Eden. And it tells us that God had to banish Adam and Eve from the garden. He had to kick them out. So he took them out of the Garden of Eden and took them out through the entrance of the Garden of Eden, whatever that was, and then he stationed some big angels in front of the, God, of the entry so they could not come back. And sometimes when I look at some of the things God, God does, I go, golly, he kind of overreacts a little. Makes my overreacting seem kind of small. They just ate the fruit. I mean, kicking them out of perfection forever doesn't seem right. But when we understand the story, we understand that that even was an act of the grace of God. If Adam and Eve, in their sinful nature, remember the curse, the labor, the sickness, the disease, the pain, the suffering, all of of that door was opened. When they sinned. And if they would have been able to go back and eat of that tree of life in the garden, they would have lived forever in that fallen state of sickness, disease, suffering, pain. Even that act was a a, a grace gift of God when you understand His story and you begin to understand the length that He will go to to restore that relationship with man. He loves us so unbelievably much that He'll go to almost any length to get us back into that relationship. When they sinned, this big bang of sin and this fallen nature did a damage to the human race forever until Jesus came back. Jesus came to the scene, I should say. You know, when Adam and Eve ate of that tree Really it was as if they had a different vision than God had. God had this vision of spending eternity with them in fellowship, eating of the tree of life as often as they wanted, fellowship with them. But they chose a different vision. They chose a selfish act. They chose to give in to the lust of their eye, the temptation of the enemy. And in doing so, they really declared to God, we have a different vision than you have. And when sin entered them, it was like their spiritual DNA was changed. And you know, when, with, uh, with human beings, in our DNA, when we produce, our DNA reproduces like kind. The spiritual DNA changed. And once the spiritual DNA of Adam and Eve had changed, they reproduced sin. Every human being born from that point on carried the DNA of sin in their life. And as we look at the story in chapters 4 through 9 of Genesis, it talks about evil growing and overtaking the earth. It starts really with a picture of of Adam and Eve and and their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous of Abel's offering to God because God seemed to like it better. Cain kills Abel, he murders his brother. And then we see for hundreds of years, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Sin and evil taking over. Mankind is in a downward spiral that it appears nothing can stop. Actually, in Genesis 6, verse 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man had grown so great on the earth that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil constantly. And if you read that verse and think about it, every thought of the intent of their heart was only evil constantly. Constantly. And God says, I'm going to wipe out evil from the face of the earth. I'm going to to destroy everything on the face of the earth to get rid of the evil. And I'm going to do it with a flood. I'm going to kill every living thing on earth. And he says, I'm going to do this to get rid of the evil. But then we discover Noah. And God sees Noah. And what God sees when he sees Noah is a man who finds favor in his eyes. In Genesis 6, 8, and 9, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless at the time, in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, Noah wasn't perfect. He had the DNA of sin in his life, just like every other human being. But he was consciously making a choice to do everything that he could in that fallen state to follow God, to honor God to try to walk in obedience to God. He wasn't walking with God like Adam and Eve did before they sinned. But he was walking. He was making a choice. Doing everything he could to glorify God. And God recognized that. Can you imagine? Whatever population was on the earth at that time, God looked at the whole population. Just think how special you'd feel if even just in this room, God picks out just one of you says, you're the best in this room. That's what he did. He looked at the whole earth and he says, Noah's the best on planet earth. I'm going to use him. So he tells Noah, he says, Noah, build a boat. Build an ark. And he tells him exactly how to do it. And he says, because you've got to build this ark and you've got to do it the way I tell you and you're going to get two of every type of animal and you're going to bring it on the boat because I'm going to flood the earth. And even in that, we see in his obedience such faith. Flood, what the heck's a flood? If you read it, it hasn't, rain, what's rain? And he's telling them, get ready. So for years and years and years and years, they labor and build this boat. God had decided that he was going to take Noah and build an ark to get rid of the evil and start over with the best human being on the planet. So he did as he said, they went in the ark, he took his three sons with him, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and their wives, and into the ark they went with the animals. There's a problem. When they went in the ark, something went in the ark with them, besides the animals, besides the sons, and besides the wives. Sin went into the ark with them. And when they disembarked from the ark, sin came off the ark with them. The significant point here to me is God is making a point that the very, very, very best human on planet earth cannot solve the problem of sin. It should do away with any works theology there ever was. You cannot earn your, your, God's pleasure in any way He gives it because that's who He is. He loves us because He is love. He doesn't judge us and say, I love you this much today and I love you that much tomorrow. He doesn't do that. He's saying the best man on earth could not provide the solution to sin. And in showing us that, He is showing us that there's going to have to be something beyond people to solve the sin problem. There's got to be something beyond people to solve the problem. And he actually had given him a clue back in the garden of what was going to have to take place. Some of the details of the story that we're going past as we teach this, when you read it, you'll see these details. When Adam and Eve sinned, instantly shame and guilt and fear entered in. And the first thing they did was noticed that they were naked. They'd been naked all along and it wasn't a problem. But as soon as sin came, shame, guilt, so they made of themselves some sort of covering out of fig leaves to cover themselves up and then they hid from God. Anybody try to hide from God? It doesn't work very well. It's a losing game a hide and seek. And it didn't work for them either. And the clue that we see in this part of the story is this. After God comes, confronts them, asks them if they ate of the tree, after they played the blame game, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and eventually, really, it's all God's fault. After they'd done all that, It says, he covered them. He took the leaves, the fig leaves, and said, no, that's not going to work. And it says, he covered them with the skins of animals. A picture for us that something has to die and blood has to be shed to cover our sin. And throughout the Old Testament history of all the worship, we see that picture reiterated over and over and over. Blood sacrifices being killed, blood being sprinkled, blood being spread, all to cover sin. But it never removes sin. But it begins to give us a picture of what it's going to take outside of humankind to deal with the problem of sin. What's the point of the story? A better question is, who's the point of the story? We are. This is God's story. It's his plan. He is the main character in it. It's all about him and who he is, but it's his story. And in his story, he chose to make human beings for fellowship. And his vision for that fellowship hasn't changed. It still hasn't changed. In spite of us, he still passionately desires an intimate relationship with every single one of us. The worst of us. The best of us. Because the best of us is no better than the worst of us. He desires relationship with every single one of us. When sin entered the world, it changed everything except God. Everything except God. And for the curse of sin and all the consequences of sin to be dealt with, it has to be God. And as we look at this, we need to remind ourselves Because we have bought into the lies of the world so strongly that somehow or other, you're not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'll never amount to anything. I'll never be anything. We've bought into that lie, and the passion of God is contrary to that, and the truth of of God is contrary to that. We are children of God, and He passionately wants relationship with every single one of us. Every single one of us. And you don't have to wait till the end of the story 30 some weeks from now to experience that. We're going to track the story and we're going to see the lengths that God will go to to try to get mankind back in relationship with Him. The story is astounding. The things that God is willing to do, willing to put up with, willing to go through, willing to to allow us to experience to get us back to that place. God is a relentless pursuer, a relentless pursuer, and he wants to get you back. Most of us, I think, understand what's coming at the end of the story, or at least almost the end of the story, and that's Jesus. And that's why I say you don't have to wait till the end of the story to experience this relationship with God because Jesus did come the solution wasn't in a human man it was in the God man Jesus God had to provide a sacrifice not to just cover sin but to remove sin to deal with sin Jesus came to earth in that part of the story when he comes to earth in the form of a child through Mary It's that fulfilling of that plan, that vision of God to get us back in relationship with Him. And He went and died on a cross for our sins. And for us to experience the effectiveness of the blood of Christ, what we have to do is acknowledge that we are sinners. And we need somebody to deal with sin on our behalf. And the only person that can do that was Jesus the Christ through his death on that cross and through his resurrection. And we have to simply acknowledge that truth and then decide, here's that choice thing, that free will thing. No one can make you choose to surrender your life to Christ and receive the gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit won't override you and force this down your throat. But he'll take this truth and soften our hearts and we need to respond to that truth. At a great cost Jesus died on the cross. That's how far God the Father goes to get us back. I hope everyone in here has accepted that sacrifice of Christ as sufficient as the only sacrifice and I want to give you an opportunity if you're here and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today's the day to do that as the story unwinds we're going to see the tremendous blessings and benefits there is so much more than just getting our ticket punched into heaven let's pray Father, I I thank you for your your word that you've given us that unveils the story of your plan for mankind. God, we see in the story that in the beginning we were living in total perfection with you. And God, it's exciting to look at the last chapters of Revelation and see that's what will be happening again. But Lord, I pray that as we read and study what takes place in between, we know you better. We begin to have greater and greater intimacy in our walk with you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never accepted the gift of salvation through Christ's death and resurrection, now would be the time. God, release your grace. that we may receive by faith salvation through Christ.